Lent comes from the word lengthen, meaning lengthen to refer to the lengthening days of spring. The 40 days represent the time Jesus spent in the wilderness, enduring temptation, preparing for ministry. In the early church traditions, Lent began as a period of fasting and preparation for baptism. But later on, it became a time of penance for all Christians. Somewhere along the way, it shifted from a season of deepening prayer to a season of shame and self-punishment. Today, many who take the Lenten journey focus on deepening their relationship with God, often choosing to give up something as a sacrificial offering. Now, I must admit that my uh, relationship to Lent is a little problematic. I, I didn't always understand it. Where I'm from, New Orleans, that's a Catholic city, and that was something the Catholics did over there. Us good Baptists, we didn't do Lent, so we just, we just watched it. But it was, Lent was always uh, viewed as the cool-down season from Mardi Gras. Uh, we just finished eating and drinking everything that we could imagine. And so we had to go on a fast to repent for all of those things we did on Fat Tuesday. And, and many would give up meat, which I personally enjoyed, fish fry Fridays. Others would give up sweets, chocolate, uh, adult beverages, which I've tried before, didn't work. Uh, lying, uh, cursing, I've also tried that, didn't turn out too well. Uh, so, so sacrifice was a part of the culture. It was shaped as an opportunity to refocus on deepening our relationship with the Creator and ourselves. But it was also focused on some things that weren't about God at all. The fasting became another opportunity for toxic weight loss conversations. The repentance part became a ritual of spectacle. People who ain't been in church all year come out to get ashes on their forehead before going to school and work in the morning. And, and many do so not necessarily to repent because repentance requires participation in community. They ain't coming out just to get their makeup done by the priest. <laughs> many come out out of some weird sense of obligation to let the world know that they are Christians. The hymn says, and they'll know that we are Christians by our love. Well, on Ash Wednesday, it feels more like they will know that we are part of a problematic belief system by our ashes. They will know that we say we follow a poor carpenter from Nazareth, but disregard the poor folk in our neighborhoods by our ashes. They will know they will know that the ashes are irrelevant, that for many Christians, they are a cheap show and tell, an outward display of repentance that has not made its way on the inside. And I'm not saying that's you today, but this is the culture of modern Ash Wednesday participation. And this is why the prophet Joel in today's passage commands the people of Israel to tear your hearts, not just your clothing, to put ashes on your hearts, not just on your heads. At that time, it was customary to rip your clothing when in mourning or lamentation and to rub ashes on your forehead. Sackcloth and ashes were worn as an external demonstration, a visible mark of someone's deep sorrow and mourning. 
But Joel is not here for the empty symbolism. Yes, fasting can be fine and sanctification is important, but it is only as relevant as the collective work of repentance that could lead to transformation of community amidst a crisis. The author opens up this sharp book by detailing several disasters that have taken place in the people's land. The locusts have attacked the vegetation. There is a famine, a food desert, if you will. There is war. A nation with vast numbers is destroying the land of inhabitants of another nation. Sound familiar? Ritual offerings at the temple can't happen because there is no wine, there is no grain, there is no oil left. There are fires running rampant, destroying animals and dwellings. For the ancient people, any sort of environmental disaster, war, or famine was a sign that God was angry with them for their disobedience and that more wrath was coming soon. And because of this, Throughout this book, the author commands several groups to undertake ritual lament and prayer so that they may capture the attention of a God who could save them from their misfortune, who could save them from themselves. Blow the trumpet in Zion, Joel proclaims. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Holy One is coming it is near. Return to God with all your heart. Return to God. It is in that returning that brings us here tonight. It is in that returning, that repentance, that the people and the land could be set free and restored. Now, repentance is a loaded word. In the Hebrew Bible, a call for repentance often translated from the word teshuva means turning back or return to God. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for repentance is used in several passages to mean to change one's mind or to change course for the better. It is an active verb, one that calls for a deeper commitment beyond a routine apology or empty outward display. I remember when I was growing up and I'd get in trouble with my mother for not doing the dishes or getting a C in biology, and I would go up to her and say, I'm so sorry, and I would, you know, fake my tears so she could lower my punishment. I'm so sorry. She would say to me, Mia, I don't, stop telling me you're sorry. I want you to show me with your actions. Show me that you are sorry. Show me that you are willing to change course for the better. Show me your intention to turn away from the destructive ways of being and toward the life-giving ways of being. She didn't want to put shame on me. She wanted me to repent. She wanted me to change for the better. I think about how repentance is framed during the Lenten season, particularly in faith spaces that emphasize a personal theology of salvation, one that allows you to review repentance as a solitary act apart from community. And we live in an, an individualistic society that says every human for themselves. The world is your oyster. It is a prudent theology of personal providence and predestination. 
not a communal theology of care for neighbor and earth. And this spills over into our faith journeys as we engage in toxic individualism of practices related to the Christian faith, particularly during this season. I need to be closer to God. I need to ruminate on my mortality. I need to connect with my personal Lord and Savior. I, 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 me, me, me. That type of theology is not going to save us. Not on Ash Wednesday, not during Lent, not in a war, not during a pandemic. But what? If repentance is not about turning away from individual wicked ways and personal shame, but instead about embracing change, change that can transform the community around you. The prophet Joel, if you notice, doesn't call the people to take individual journeys of repentance. He instead says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even the breastfeeding babies. Because Joel understood that salvation was communal. Joel understood that without communal reflection and action, there wouldn't be enough survival in the famine. Joel understood that the ashes are only as relevant as the collective commitments we make to change. And not just change in our lives, but change in the lives of those around us, in the lives of the least of these. We are living in a time where the locusts have eaten our crops. We are reeling from the effects of not having listened to the prophets who called us to do right by each other and the earth. We are living in a time where instead of following in the ways of Christ, folks have followed their own counsels. Avoidable death is at our doorstep and we come week after week Lighting remembrance candles, offering prayers for global peace, cringing before God and each other, hoping that ashes to ashes and dust to dust will save us or comfort us or center us. But perhaps God is calling us to something more this Lent. Something beyond contemplating our own mortalities, especially after watching millions die over the past two years. Something beyond sacrificing food. Something beyond solemn music and priestly apologies. Perhaps God is calling us to change to transformation, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of life and liberation of all people. Dr. Eddie Gloud Jr. says, we have become better people. We have to become better people by fundamentally transforming the conditions of our living together. That is repentance our commitment to becoming agents of transformation to better the conditions of our living together. 
And as Monica Coleman says, this gives us the kind of communal theology that tells us that we experience God's grace and God's salvation the most when we are in teaching and healing communities that help to make the world a better place. So friends, will you commit to transformation with me this evening? As you receive your ashes tonight and partake in holy communion, will you commit to bettering the conditions of our living together? Will you commit to not just journey solemnly with your head hung low in shame, thinking about your own mortality, but journeying to make the world a better place while you are alive? And if you are still alive in these days and breathing freely in a pandemic-riddled world where easy breath is hard to come by, you ought to always be leaning into transformation, into evolution, into change. As Octavia Butler reminded us, God is change. Survival is change. Repentance is change. Freedom is change. You are change. Will you commit to the journey of change with me this evening? Amen.